Part Four of Queen of the Martian Catacombs by Lee Douglas Brackett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Four. Night came swiftly. Stark left behind him the torches and the laughter and the sounding harps, coming into the streets of the old city where there was nothing but silence and the light of the low moons. He saw the lower keys, great looming shapes of marble, rounded and worn by time, and went toward them. Presently he found that he was following a faint but definite path threaded between the ancient houses. It was very still, so that the dry whisper of the drifting dust was audible. He passed under the shadow of the keys and turned into a broad way that had once led up from the harbor. A little way ahead, on the other side, he saw a tall building half-fallen in ruin. Its windows were shuttered, barred with light, and from it came the sound of voices and a thin thread of music, very reedy and evil. Stark approached it, slipping through the ragged shadows as though he had no more weight to him than a drift of smoke. Once a door banged, and a man came out of Kala's and passed by going down to Valkus. Stark saw his face in the moonlight. It was the face of a beast rather than a man. He muttered to himself as he went, and once he laughed, and Stark felt a loathing in him. He waited until the sound of footsteps had died away. The ruined houses gave no sign of danger. A lizard rustled between the stones, and that was all. The moonlight lay bright and still on Kala's door. Stark found a little shard of rock and tossed it so that it made a sharp snicking sound against the shadowed wall behind him. Then he held his breath, listening. No one, nothing stirred. Only the dry wind sighed in the empty houses. Stark went out across the open space and nothing happened. He flung open the door of Kala's dive. Yellow light spilled out, and a choking wave of hot and stuffy air. Inside there were tall lamps with quartz lenses, each of which poured down a beam of throbbing gold-orange light. And in the little pools of radiance, on filthy furs and cushions on the floor, lay men and women whose faces were slack and bestial. Stark realized now what secret vice Kala sold here. Shanga, the going back, the radiation that caused temporary artificial atavism, and left men wallow for a time in beasthood. It was supposed to have been stamped out when the Lady Fan's dark Shanga ring had been destroyed. But it still persisted in places like this outside the law. He looked for Frika and recognized the tall barbarian. He was sprawled under one of the Shanga lamps, eyes closed, face brutish, growling and twitching in sleep like the beast he had temporarily become. A voice spoke from behind Stark's shoulder. "'I am Kala. What do you wish, Outlander?' He turned. Kala might have been beautiful once, a thousand years ago as you reckon sin. She wore still the sweet chiming bells in her hair, 
and Stark thought of Fianna. The woman's ravaged face turned him sick. It was like the reedy, piping music, woven out of the very heart of evil. Yet her eyes were shrewd, and he knew that she had not missed his searching look around the room, nor his interest in Rika. There was a note of warning in her voice. He did not want trouble yet, not until he found some hint of the trap Fiala had told him of. He said, "'Bring me wine.' "'Will you try the lamp of going back, Outlander? It brings much joy.' "'Perhaps later. Now I wish wine.' She went away, clapping her hands for a slatternly wench who came between the sprawled figures with an earthen mug. Stark sat down beside a table, where his back was to the wall, and he could see both the door and the whole room. Kala had returned to her own heap of furs by the door, but her basilic eyes were alert. Stark made a pretense of drinking, but his mind was very busy, very cold. Perhaps this in itself was the trap. Frika was temporarily a beast. He would fight, and Kala would shriek, and the other dull-eyed brutes would rise and fight also. But he would have needed no warning about that, and Delgon himself had said there would be trouble. No, there was something more. He let his gaze wander over the room. It was large, and there were other rooms off of it. The openings hung with ragged curtains. Through the rents Stark could see others of Kala's customers sprawled under Shanga lamps, and some of these had gone so far back from humanity that they were hideous to behold. But still there was no sign of danger to himself. There was only one odd thing. The room nearest to where Frico sat was empty, and its curtains were only partly drawn. Stark began to brood on the emptiness of that room. He beckoned Kala to him. "'I will try the lamp,' he said. "'But I wish privacy. Have it brought to that room there,' Kala said. "'That room is taken. But I see no one. It is taken. It is paid for, and no one may enter. I will have your lamp brought here.' "'No,' said Stark. "'The hell with it. I'm going.' He flung down a coin and went out. Moving swiftly outside, he placed his eye to a crack in the nearest shutter and waited. Luhar of Venus came out of the empty room. His face was worried, and Stark smiled. He went back and stood flat against the wall beside the door. In a moment it opened, and the Venusian came out, drawing his gun as he did so. Stark jumped him. Luhar let out one angry cry. His gun went off, a vicious streak of flame across the moonlight, and then Stark's great hand crushed the bones of his wrist together so that he dropped it clashing on the stones. He whirled around, raking Stark's face with his nails as he clawed for the earthman's eyes, and Stark hit him. Luhar fell, rolling over, and before he could scramble up again, Stark had picked up the gun and thrown it away into the ruins across the street. Luhar came up from the pavement in one cat-like spring. Stark fell with him back through Kala's door, and they rolled together among the foul furs and cushions. 
Luhar was built of spring steel, with no softness in him anywhere, and his long fingers were locked around Stark's throat. Kala screamed with fury. She caught a whip from among her cushions, a traditional weapon among the low canals, and began to lash the two men impartially, her hair flying in tangled locks across her face. The bestial figures under the lamps shambled to their feet and growled. The long lash ripped Stark's shirt and the flesh of his back beneath it. He snarled and staggered to his feet, with Luhar still clinging to the death grip on his throat. He pushed Luhar's face away from him with both hands and threw himself forward over a table so that Luhar was crushed beneath him. The Venusian's breath left him with a whistling grunt. His fingers relaxed. Stark struck his hands away. He rose and bent over Luhar and picked him up, gripping him cruelly so that he turned white with the pain and raised him high and flung him bodily into the growling beast-faced men who were shambling toward him. Kala leaped at Stark, cursing, striking him with the coiling lash. He turned. The thin veneer of civilization was gone from Stark now, erased in a second by the first hint of battle. His eyes blazed with a cold light. He took the whip out of Kala's hand and laid his palm across her evil face, and she fell and lay still. He faced the ring of bestial, shaga-sodden men who walled him off from what he had been sent to do. There was a reddish tinge to his vision, partly blood, partly sheer rage. He could see Rika standing erect in the corner, his head weaving from side to side brutishly. Stark raised the whip and strode into the ring of men who were no longer quite men. Hands struck and clawed him. Bodies reeled and fell away. Blank eyes glittered and red mouths squealed, and there was a mingling of snarls and bestial laughter in his ears. The bloodlust had spread to these creatures now. They swarmed upon Stark and bore him down with the weight of their writhing bodies. They bit him and savaged him in a blind way, and he fought his way up again, shaking them off with his great shoulders, trampling them under his boots. The lash hissed and sang, and the smell of blood rose on the choking air. Freka's dazed, brutish face swam before Stark. The Martian growled and flung himself forward. Stark swung the loaded butt of the whip. It cracked solidly on the Shuni's temple, and he sagged into Stark's arms. Out of the corner of his eyes Stark saw Luhar. He had risen and crept around the edge of the fight. He was behind Stark now, and there was a knife in his hand. Hampered by Freka's weight, Stark could not leap aside. As Luhar rushed in, he crouched and went backward, his head and shoulders taking the Venusian low in the belly. He felt the hot kiss of the blade in his flesh, but the wound was glancing, and before Luhar could strike again, Stark twisted like a gray cat and struck him down. Luhar's skull rang on the flagging. The earthman's fist rose and fell twice. After that, Luhar did not move. Stark got to his feet. He stood with his knees bent and his shoulders flexed, looking from side to side, and the sound that came out of his throat was one of pure savagery. He moved forward a step or two, half-naked, bleeding, 
towering like a dark colossus over the lean Martians, and the brutish thong gave back from him. They had taken more mauling than they liked, and there was something about the outlander's simple desire to rend them apart that penetrated even their Shanga-clouded minds. Kala sat up on the floor and snarled, Get out! Stark stood a moment or two longer, looking at them. Then he lifted Frika to his feet and laid him over his shoulders like a sack of meal and went out, moving neither fast nor slow, but in a straight line and way was made for him. He carried the Shuni down through the silent streets and into the twisting, crowded ways of Valkus. There, too, the people stared at him and drew back out of his path. He came to Delgon's palace. The guards closed in behind him, but they did not ask that he stop. Delgon was in the council room, and Beryl was still with him. It seemed that they had been waiting over their wine and their private talk. Delgon rose to his feet as Stark came in, so sharply that his goblet fell and spilled a red pool of wine at his feet. Stark let the Shuni drop to the floor. "'I have brought Freka,' he said. "'Luhar is still at Kalas.' He looked into Delgon's eyes, golden and cruel, the eyes of his dream. It was hard not to kill. Suddenly the woman laughed, very clear and ringing, and her laughter was all for Delgon. <laughs> "'Well done, wild man,' she said to Stark. "'Kynon is lucky to have such a captain. One word for the future, though. Watch out for Freka. He won't forgive you this.' Stark said thickly, looking at Delgon. "'This hasn't been a night for forgiveness.' Then he added, "'I can handle Freka.' Beryl said, "'I like you, wild man.' Her eyes dwelt on Stark's face, curious, compelling. Ride beside me when we go. I would know more about you. And she smiled. A dark flush crept over Delgon's face. In a voice tight with fury, he said, Perhaps you've forgotten something, Beryl. There is nothing for you in this barbarian, this creature of an hour. He would have said more in his anger, but Beryl said sharply, we will not speak of time. Go now, Stark. Be ready at midnight." Stark went, and as he went his brow was furrowed deep by a strange doubt. At midnight, in the great square of the slave market, Kynon's caravan formed again and went out of Balkus with thundering drums and skirling pipes. Delgon was there to see them go, and the cheering of the people rang after them on the desert wind. Stark rode alone. He was in a brooding mood and wanted no company, least of all that of Lady Berald. She was beautiful, she was dangerous, and she belonged to Kynon, or to Dalgon, or perhaps to both of them. In Stark's experience women like that were sudden death, and he wanted no part of her, at any rate not yet. Luhar rode ahead with Kynon. He had come dragging into the square at the mountain, his face battered and swollen, an ugly look in his eyes. Kynon gave one quick look from him to Stark, who had his own scars, and said harshly, 
Dalgon tells me there's a blood feud between you two. I want no more of it, understand? After you're paid off, you can kill each other and welcome, but not until then. Is that clear? Stark nodded, keeping his mouth shut. Luhar muttered assent, and they had not looked at each other since. Frika rode in his customary place by Kynon, which put him near to Luhar. It seemed to Stark that their beasts swung close together more often than was necessary from the roughness of the track. The big barbarian captain sat rigidly erect in his saddle, but Stark had seen his face in the torchlight, sick and sweating, with the brute look still clouding his eyes. There was a purple mark on his temple, but Stark was quite sure that Beryl had spoken the truth. Frika would not forgive him either the indignity or the hangover of his unfinished wallow under the lamps of Shunga. The Dead Sea bottom widened away under the black sky. As they left the lights of Valkus behind, winding their way over the sand and the ribs of coral, dropping lower with every mile into the vast basin, it was hard to believe that there could be life anywhere on a world that could produce such cosmic desolation. The little moons fled away, trailing their eerie shadows over rock formations tortured into impossible shapes by wind and water, peering into clefts that seemed to have no bottom, turning the sand white as bone. The iron stars blazed, so close that the wind seemed edged with their frosty light, and in all that endless space nothing moved, and the silence was so deep that the coughing howl of a sand-cat far away in the east made Stark jump with its loudness. Yet Stark was not oppressed by the wilderness. Born and bred to the wild and barren places, this desert was more kin to him than the cities of men. After a while there was a jangling of brazen bangles behind him, and Fiala came up. He smiled at her, and she said rather sullenly, "'The Lady Beryl sent me to remind you of her wish.' Stark glanced to where the scarlet-curtained litter rocked along, and his eyes glinted. "'She's not one to let go of a thing, is she?' "'No.' Fiona saw that no one was within earshot, and then said quietly, "'Was it as I said at Kala's?' Stark nodded. I think, little one, that I owe you my life. Luhar would have killed me as soon as I tackled Frika. He glanced over and touched her hand where it lay on the bridle. She smiled a young girl's smile that seemed very sweet in the moonlight, honest and comradely. It was odd to be talking of death with a pretty girl in the moonlight. Stark said, Why does Delgon want to kill me? He gave no reason when he spoke to the man from Venus, but perhaps I can guess. He knows that you're as strong as he is, and so he fears you. Also the Lady Beryl looked at you in a certain way. I thought Beryl was Kynon's woman. Perhaps she is, for the time, answered Fiona enigmatically. Then she shook her head, glancing around with what was almost fear. I have risked much already. Please don't let it be known that I have spoken to you beyond what I was sent to say." Her eyes pleaded with him, and Stark realized with a shock that Fiona, too, stood on the edge of a quicksand. "'Don't be afraid,' he said, and meant it. We'd better go." She swung her beast around, and as she did so she whispered, 
Be careful, Eric John Stark. Stark nodded. He rode behind her, thinking that he liked the sound of his name on her lips. The Lady Berold lay among her furs and cushions, and even then there was no indolence about her. She was relaxed as a cat is, perfectly at ease and yet vibrant with life. In the shadows of the litter her skin showed silver-white, and her loosened hair was a sweet darkness. "'Are you stubborn, wild man?' she asked. "'Or do you find me distasteful?' He had not realized before how rich and soft her voice was. He looked down at the magnificent supple length of her and said, "'I find you most damnably attractive, and that's why I'm stubborn.' "'Afraid? I'm taking Kynon's pay. Should I take his woman also?' She laughed, half scornfully. <laughs> Kynon's ambitions leave no room for me. We have an agreement because a king must have a queen, and he finds my counsel useful. You see, I am ambitious, too. Apart from that, there is nothing." Stark looked at her, trying to read her smoke-gray eyes in the gloom. "'And Delgon?' "'He wants me, but—' She hesitated and then went on, in a tone quite different from before, her voice low and throbbing with a secret pleasure as vast and elemental as the star-shot sky. "'I belong to no one,' she said. "'I am my own.' Stark knew that for the moment she had forgotten him. He rode for a time in silence, and then he said slowly, repeating Delgon's words, "'Perhaps you have forgotten something, Berold. There is nothing for you and me, the creature of an hour." He saw her start, and for a moment her eyes blazed and her breath was sharply drawn. Then she laughed and said, "'The wild man is also a parrot. And an hour can be a long time, as long as eternity, if one wills it so.' "'Yes,' said Stark. "'I have often thought so, waiting for death to come at me out of a crevice in the rocks. The great lizard stings, and his bite is fatal." He leaned over in the saddle, his shoulders looming above hers, naked in the biting wind. "'My hours with women are short ones,' he said. "'They come after the battle, when there is time for such things. Perhaps then I'll come and see you.' He spurred away and left her without a backward look and the skin of his back tingled with the expectancy of a flying knife. But the only thing that followed him was a disturbing echo of laughter down the wind. Dawn came. Kynon beckoned Stark to his side, and pointed out at the cruel waste of sand, with here and there a reef of basalt black against the burning white. This is the country you will lead your men over. Learn it. He was speaking to Luhar as well. Learn every water-hole, every vantage-point, every trail that leads toward the border. There are no better fighters than the dry-land men when they're well led, and you must prove to them that you can lead. You'll work with their own chieftains. Frika and the others you'll meet when we reach Sinharat. Luhar said, Sinharat? My headquarters. It's about seven days' march, an island city, old as the moons. The Ramacult was strong there, legend has it, and it's a sort of holy place to the tribesmen. That's why I picked it. 
He took a deep breath and smiled, looking out over the dead sea bottom toward the border, and his eyes held the same pitiless light as the sun that baked the desert. Very soon now, he said, more to himself than the others, only a handful of days before we drown the border states in their own blood, and after that— He laughed very softly and said no more. Stark could believe that what Beryl had said of him was true. There was a flame of ambition in Kynon that would let nothing stand in its way. He measured the size and the strength of the tall barbarian, the eagle look of his face and the iron that lay beneath his joviality. Then Stark, too, stared off toward the border, and wondered if he would ever see Tarak or hear Simon Ashton's voice again. For three days they marched without incident. At noon they made a dry camp and slept away the blazing hours, and then went on again under a darkening sky, a long line of tall men and rangy beasts, with the scarlet litter blooming like a strange flower in the midst of it, jingling bridles and dust, and padded hoofs trampling the bones of the sea toward the island city of Sinharat. Stark did not speak again to Berold, nor did she send for him. Fiona would pass him in the camp and smile sidelong and go on. For her sake he did not stop her. Neither Luhar nor Frigga came near him. They avoided him pointedly, except when Kynon called them all together to discuss some point of strategy. But the two seemed to have become friends and drank together from the same bottle of wine. Stark slept always beside his mount, his back guarded and his gun loose. The hard lessons learned in his childhood had stayed with him, and if there was a footfall near him in the dust, he woke often before the beast did. Toward morning of the fourth night the wind that never seemed to falter from its steady blowing began to drop. At dawn it was dead still, and the rising sun had a tinge of blood. The dust rose under the feet of the beasts and fell again where it had risen. Stark began to sniff the air. More and more often he looked toward the north, where there was a long slope as flat as his palm that stretched away farther than he could see. A restless unease grew within him. Presently he spurred ahead to join Kynon. "'There is a storm coming,' he said, and turned his head northward again. Kynon looked at him curiously. "'You have the right direction,' he said. "'One might think you are a native.' He, too, gazed with brooding anger at the long sweep of emptiness. "'I wish we were closer to the city. But one place is as bad as another when the Comsin blows, and the only thing to do is to keep moving. You're a dead dog if you stop. Dead and buried.' He swore with a curious admixture of blunt Anglo-Saxon in his Martian profanity as though the storm were a personal enemy. "'Pass the word along to force it.' Dump whatever they have to lighten the loads, and get Beryl out of that damned litter. Stick by her, will you, Stark? I've got to stay here at the head of the line. And don't get separated. Above all, don't get separated." Stark nodded and dropped back. He got Beryl mounted, and they left the litter there, a bright patch of crimson on the sand, its curtains limp in the utter stillness. Nobody talked much. The beasts were urged on to the top of their speed. 
They were nervous and fidgety, inclined to break out of line and run for it. The sun rose higher. One hour. The windless air shimmered. The silence lay upon the caravan with a crushing hand. Stark went up and down the line, lending a hand to the sweating drovers with the pack animals that now carried only water skins and a bare supply of food. Fianna rode close beside Berold. Two hours. For the first time that day there was a sound in the desert. It came from far off, a moaning wail like the cry of a giantess in travail. It rushed closer, rising as it did so to a dry and bitter shriek that filled the whole sky, shook it, and tore it open, letting in all the winds of hell. It struck swiftly. One moment the air was clear and motionless. The next it was blind with dust and screaming as it fled, tearing with demonic fury at everything in its path. Stark spurred toward the women, who were only a few feet away, but already hidden by the veil of mingled dust and sand. Someone blundered into him in the murk. Long hair whipped across his face, and he reached out, crying, Fianna! Fianna! A woman's hand caught his, and a voice answered, but he could not hear the words. Then suddenly his beast was crowded by other scaly bodies. The woman's grip had broken. Hard masculine hands clawed at him. He could make out, dimly, the features of two men close to his, Luhar and Frika. His beast gave a great lurch and sprang forward. Stark was dragged from the saddle to fall backward into the raging sand. End of Part 4